The nominees for Best Picture of the Year are Forrest Gump, Wendy, F Wendy Feinerman, Steve Tisch, Steve Starkey, my eyes, producers. Four Weddings and a Funeral, Duncan Kenworthy, producer. Pulp Fiction, Lawrence Bender, producer. Uh, quiz Show, Robert Redford, Michael Jacobs, Julian Cranin, Michael Nozick, producers. The Shawshank Redemption, Nicky Marvin, producer. Welcome to episode 28 of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. This week I have a first-time guest, but somebody I've known for quite a long time, Sky Brandon. We go back to our university days, the drama department at the University of Saskatchewan is where we first met. And you're a theater guy, but I know you love movies. And the other thing I, I, I kind of know is, I mean, you have certainly your favorites. I, I think um, from listening to, uh, and I'll do probably about 10 plugs for rank and review throughout the show, but, <laughs> Larry's show, but you and Larry have been going through the entire Marvel universe and just waiting for Black Widow to come out before you can uh, do the next one. That's right. And you've also did a show on Shakespeare. You did a show on Westerns. So I, I, and I remember in the draft, department every year we would have a oscar pool that's right and so some of us were really interested in the academy awards and i remember 97 in particular well i guess it was early 98 the awards happened i i felt like everybody was a little bit cynical and jaded about titanic but i think you and i were titanic <laughs> defenders at that time so that's right i think i recall uh talking to lee beckman like dude you have you have to you have to go i made him come with me to see it and you have to watch it and I, I remember hearing complaints about stuff, and I don't. I haven't watched Satanic for a while there, but I, I, I'm wondering if I'm going to be a little bit more, a little bit harsher on it when I revi revisit it sometime soon. That might be the case with the movies we're talking about. So we're focusing this one on the Academy Award nominees for Best Picture in 1994. I, I have a show that I started if, like, if I'm ever caught for a, a week or something, where and then when COVID first happened, I didn't have a show or a guest kind of lined up where. I, I do a show where I look at like that five to ten format for the Academy Awards that they've done for the last 15 years and then I review them and assign points and what the top five are and shed all the rest of the nominees because I kind of like the five uh, movie best picture format. I think this will be kind of a series of years where I, I revisit the nominees every once in a while and this will be the first episode in, in that way. So the thing that kind of sucks about this is this is 1994. To me, there were, I, I mean, I became a huge movie geek in the 90s and there were three years, 1991, 1994, and 1999. There were lots of other good years that decade, I think, for movies, but those were years that were just extremely Extraordinary. So you could have you could have actually had ten nominees, and you would still be snubbing some films. So I like all of the movies that we're going to be talking about. So uh, the idea of losing one of them at the end is going to be painful, and so that'll be interesting. But '94 was an interesting year. There was just one good movie after another. I think we could probably come up with another five easily five films. I mean, that was a year of Hoop Dreams, the great documentary, Red, White, and Blue trilogy, Christoph Kozlowski's, Paul Newman was in Nobody's Fool. I'm a defense of natural born killers oliver stone's movie there was a lot of really cool stuff that year uh, that that was a year clerks 
came out of nowhere towards the end of the year. Very important independent filmmakers came out of that year. So these were the five nominees, and I like all of them, but I also liked a ton of movies that year. So I don't know how you felt about that particular year, and how you feel right now about the Academy Awards in general. Well, that year in particular, like I think we kind of landed on on this one too, because it's you know you bandy back and forth on social media from time to time. I'm not on it as often as as I have been in the past, but I, I think this kind of came out of kind of your general like hey well what are you thinking about and i think it came after a post about shawshank you know and this was the year that made me want to be an actor like i was at i was i was at the university as a commerce student living in residence that fall fall of 94 and then class real theater for those who remember was an amazing movie theater that was on campus it's now been turned into a lecture hall but when you lived on campus and you would show your meal card your student meal card to show that you were a campus student on res you could get in for free except for i think it was friday and saturday night and then they would just make a killing off of us on popcorn and drinks so whenever i was done assignments or whenever i wanted to avoid doing assignments <laughs> i went to plus real and so it was a second run theater so that fall and well into early 95 leading up to the oscars they would you know they were playing forrest gump shawshank pulp fiction like those movies that were getting all the oscar buzz and i went and saw them like seven eight nine times yeah easily why, yeah. why wouldn't you yeah. Yeah. And so by the end of that year, I'm like, I think I want to be an actor. And then I eventually switched and got into the drama department, even though I had never done drama in high school. And so it was kind of cool picking this this year because of, of that switch for me personally. So it was really nice to revisit some of these films. I didn't know that it, it was that year. So that's kind of cool that we're talking about that, because uh, for those who don't know, like Sky is an accomplished actor and say some nice things about you there. But uh, and you're always <laughs> a very modest guy about this stuff. I, and I had the privilege in a very small way in the drama department to act with you a little bit. And so now since the last, you know, several years, you've been in Stratford and you've been able to work with all these extraordinary people and you come back here and brought some of uh, what you learned Stratford and, uh, and your time in London back to Saskatoon, which has been awesome. But, you know, it, it, it's just to me, that's just a, re- a remarkable thing. And my path into being interested in theater and drama and being a, a drama teacher came from uh, the movies. I, I, I mm-hmm. might credit 1991 a little bit more than 94, but 94, I was just like, I was so committed to movies. And then the independent movement seemed to like become mainstream. I was like, movies can be even better than I thought when I was discovering important movies in 1991. So yeah, it, it was just a, just a really amazing year. Yeah. So the movies that were nominated for best picture that year, Forrest Gump, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Quiz Show, Pulp Fiction, and The Shawshank redemption and i think we we came to this episode through shawshank i should just mention before we get into the reviews there will be spoilers for the five movies we're reviewing and there may be some chorus language hello my name's forrest forrest gump would you like a chocolate oh thank you it's funny what a young man recollects you're the same as everybody else you are no different your boy's different are you stupid or something? Mama says stupid is as stupid does. I'm Jenny. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. She was my most special friend. My only friend. We was together all the time. We were like peas and carrots, Jenny and I. Run, Forrest! Hey, stupid! Run! Now, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but I can run like the wind blows. Who in the hell is that? That there is Forrest Gump, coach. Just a local idiot. I never thought it would take me anywhere. 
David put me on a thing called the All-America Team. Well, you get to meet the President of the United States. Congratulations. How does it feel to be an All-American? I got a pay. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. Now, maybe it's just me, but college was very confusing times. Have you ever been with a girl, Forrest? sit next to them in my home economics class all the time. Have you given any thought to your future? Girl, what's your sole purpose in this army? To do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant. You're a damn genius. You are going to be a general someday, go. Yes, drill sergeant! They sent me to Vietnam. Listen, you promised me something, OK? If you're ever in trouble, don't try to be brave. You just run, OK? OK. Where are you boys from in the world? Alabama, sir. You twins? No, we are not relations, sir. For some reason, what I was doing seemed to make sense to people. Forget about me and get yourself out! Been awarded the Medal of Honor. How come? Now, my mama's always telling me how miracles happen every day. <laughs> some people don't think so. Jenny! But they do. <laughs> you can come home with me at my house in Greenbow. I'll take care of you. Why are you so good to me? You're my girl. Paramount Pictures presents... Tom Hanks. I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Robin Wright. Will you marry me? I'd make a good husband, Jenny. You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me. Gary Sinise. I never thanked you for saving my life. And Sally Field. My boy, Forrest, is going to get the same opportunities as everyone else. A film by Robert Zemeckis. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. seem the same once you've seen it through the eyes of Forrest Gump. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. I often give a plot synopsis, but of course, it's a 27, all these movies are 27 years old, I believe, which is scary. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about that today. I was thinking, how many years has it been? And, and yeah, it's just wild. But if at this point you haven't seen Forrest Gump, I assume you're just super young or you just weren't interested in seeing it. So basically, Tom Hanks plays Forrest Gump and uh, he is tested as having a low IQ and he observes major moments uh, in American history over 25, 30 year period. And while he goes through all these adventures, all he really wants is to connect with his childhood 
good friend and love interest, Jenny, played by Robin Wright. He fights in Vietnam and encounters his lieutenant, play, uh, Lieutenant Dan, played by Gary Sinise, and makes a friend in Baba, played by uh, Mike T. Williamson. He's very connected to his mother, played by the great Sally Field. And then we get to see a bunch of other really interesting actors, including late in the film, spoilers, uh, Forrest has a son, played by Haley Joel Osment, who a few years later became famous uh, for The Sixth Sense. He's still working. He can't disappear for a few years there, but he'll show up in uh, The Kaminsky Method. It was the last time I think I saw him. Forrest Gump 1, I was still young enough that I was pouting a little bit when a film that I wanted to win didn't, which was not Forrest Gump, spoilers on that front, but I I don't know. There's something about Forrest Gump. I, I think I'm an apologist because I know lots of people who do not like this movie. I don't know if it's because of all the attention it got at the time, but there's something about it that genuinely gets to me. Like, it's an emotional reaction, and there are certain scenes where last two times I've seen it, it gets a little bit misty in the room or something there, because I start to get uh, a little bit teary-eyed about some things, and someone's even anticipating some things. I'm a big fan of Forrest Gump, even though it's not going to be my favorite of the five we talk about. Obviously, I love what Hanks did. Uh, I, I've heard, I'm interested to get your take on it, because I know there's a counter-argument there to Hanks' performance, because he pretty much had Best Actor sewn up from the beginning of, of the year, from the summer when it premiered till the uh, award show. But to me, the one who is kind of the unsung hero of that film is Robin Wright playing Jenny. I actually think she wasn't even nominated. I think she probably should have won the Oscar for her role, which was, to me, uh, they're, they're both difficult roles. But her role, I think, is quite challenging. Some people talk about in Rain Man that Tom Cruise is one of his best performances because he is having to react off of Dustin Hoffman, but he's not being given anything back because of the nature of his his brother Raymond can't make eye contact and so the acting process is much more challenging in a, a role like that so anyway I really like Robin Wright I've always liked her performance from the first time I saw it till this past weekend when I watched it again I'm an apologist and a defender of Forrest Gump but I'm interested in how you feel about it yeah I, I loved it when it came out um, I remember seeing it that summer and it really hit me in the feels uh, even yeah. then right and that was before I had any kind of inkling of trying to do this for a living I just the storytelling was was really fantastic and emotional and even though it, it is maybe some would say I don't know maybe it's purposely trying to play to the emotions I never really feel like he was heavy-handed or over or overdone I, I felt like everything was earned in it and just from like a structuring standpoint it's kind of interesting when I look back on some of the plays that I've produced and things that I'm gravitated towards I quite often there's a historical element to it even if it's a new Canadian play it's about a historical event that happened in the past quite often I'm interested in in portraying or exploring how much we haven't learned and how we seem to repeat ourselves so watching a film that went back historically not too too far when it came out in 94 but still but it you have to offset the the macro with the micro and so you got this really personal story with tom hanks playing forrest gump who's like this by all accounts you know simple straightforward person who has this extraordinary life and these extraordinary things that happen to him and i think that is what resonated with a lot of people is getting to watch this story of this one individual against all of these events that happened in american history and i just like that as a structure um and special effects too at the time like it was a big deal when they were like superimposing him into that old footage and you know it doesn't maybe trick the eye now when you watch it because we 
we've grown so accustomed to to better special effects and computer graphics. But at the time too, it was like a really touching story, good performances, and it had all these special effects. And I'm a big sucker for score too. Like I'm often like, who did the score? And I try to see if I can pick out who it is yeah. by my ear. So Alan Silvestri, you know, he's done some of my favorite films. He's not my favorite composer, but he's right up there. So it kind of, it had a lot going on. And, it, and I agree. I think Robin Wright, she's kind of the emotional anchor. He's the one that it's, he's continually, I don't want to say chasing, that's not the right word, but she kind of is his personal quest. The one person who showed him kindness and he's trying to get back to her. And I just kind of like that quest, if one can call it that. She's the one who experiences in kind of a mainstream way, the 50s into the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s, in a way that is a little bit more down to earth and a little bit more relatable to people of that generation. Whereas Forrest Gump is experiencing all these extraordinary things all the time, but he's pretty clear on who he is. And she, because of her background and what happened to her as a child, is always searching for herself. She's she's not comfortable in herself. And just, it, it's, it's very subtle in what she does as, as far as being a victim of abuse as a child and how that affects her adult life and how the culture of the 60s and 70s kind of um, made her quite vulnerable to a lot of, you know, the the temptations to try to find ways to forget about her childhood and, and all the trauma that she'd experienced. You know, she was quite young at the time and I didn't recognize her when I first saw, saw the movie from The Princess Bride, of course, which I think was her most prominent role before that. And she was just a revelation to me. I, I went in knowing that Tom Hanks was in it and I thought, oh, this looks like, like interesting. I still wasn't completely sold on him. Philadelphia pretty much told me that he could do some serious stuff, but I didn't realize that he necessarily had this in his wheelhouse at that time. I still thought he would go back to doing mainstream comedies, which he still sort of does, but he wasn't like the the heavy hitter Hollywood mogul that he is now, even in 93-94. And I just thought he, maybe because my expectations were a little bit lower, that's why I was blown away by his performance. Well, and he, you know, it's an interesting, I remember too, it being a historical fact, like at that point, like no one had won Academy Awards in back-to-back years since like Spencer Tracy or something like that, and no one has done it since then. I, I do think in a way that's part of the allure of the of at least him within the picture is there was this really kind of like, oh my goodness, is this going to happen? Is he going to get it two years in a row? Because Philadelphia was, as you said, like really great work. And I think it seemed even more so coming from him because up to that point, everything he'd been doing or at least was known for was films like, you know, Big and like, yeah, those fun kind of, you know, comedies with a heart of gold. And all of a sudden he kind of went back to back with these ones and he kind of changed the course of his own career. I, I remember he won the Golden Globe for Philadelphia and he gave this really really impassioned speech like he's pretty famous for his acceptance speech at the Oscars when he won uh, and then they, they had this shot of somebody I, I forget who it was one of the celebrities sitting at the tables who turned to whoever she was with and go went wow they had no idea how deep Tom Hanks is uh, until this acceptance speech <laughs> So and it was almost like they thought, oh, this is maybe lightning in a bottle or something. And then basically six months later, he gives uh, another Academy Award worthy performance. Some people debate that a little bit. Uh, I, I'll just, I'll be the devil's advocate. And some people said this again, I, I, I meant, meant, keep mentioning Rain Man, because I think there is a parallel. And I remember some reviewers arguing this, that in both in Rain Man for Hoffman and in Forrest Gump for Tom Hanks, they're able to, like, if once they reach this note, then they can play the note 
for the film and, and it's quite effective, but it doesn't have as much range as, say, some of the other actors we're going to talk about in some of the other films. And those who were arguing for somebody else to win the Oscar other than Hanks. There were some prominent, like Gene, Gene Siskel said that he, he would have voted for Tom Hanks and gave many good reasons. His favorite scene in Hanks's performance is also my favorite scene. So again, I think I kind of spoiled this one already, but again, 27 year old movie here that we're talking <laughs> about. There's a scene uh, late in the film where uh, Jenny tells Forrest that he has a son. And if you look at that reaction that Hanks gives and he, he backs away for a second as he's processing it. And then he realizes that he's the father and then how the, the rest of that dialogue between the two of them, it's not something that's shown as like a famous clip or a famous quote from the film, but that is so tough to do and so well done by Hanks. And I think if I was to point at uh, a single scene as to what to justify him winning the Oscar, it would be that one. Yeah. That and his, his speech at her grave. Yes. Uh, always, always, always gets me. Yeah. And, and just while it's fresh in my head too, to, to double back ever so briefly with Robin Wright, I think her scene is my favorite one in the whole movie is when she returns to the house and starts throwing the rocks. Like it's a scene without dialogue and she starts throwing rocks at her old childhood home. And that's still for me is kind of the most powerful moment in the whole in the whole movie um it was really interesting getting to watch some of these again because now you know i have a child and watching with my daughter she's she's 12 now and so these you know obviously we didn't watch all five together because some of them would not have been yeah, there's one, one in particular <laughs> i'm thinking of that maybe exactly that's kind of like the only one she did she didn't watch with me yeah. or rewatch. but getting to watch forrest gump with her was really great too because i'm like okay no, this is this movie is special for all sorts of reasons, and getting to watch her watch it while I was kind of going through it again was pretty special. A few other things I should mention. I, I, I wanted to comment on the special effects. You know, it, it's interesting because I was just kind of unaware of the special effects and how elaborate they were when I watched it when I was younger and I first saw it. And I, I, I think at that time I kind of thought of like more of the popcorn movies. Not that this wasn't a popcorn movie, but a movie like The Mask came out the same year, and I think it was up for special effects against it with all these new computer graphics and um, that were seemed amazing at the time. But I, I think if I watch The Mask and its special effects and I watch Forrest Gump, I, I think Forrest Gump's effects, while you still can sort of see how it happens, they've aged better than some of the flashier special effect movies of, you know, the mid to late 90s. And I, I still think it kind of works. It doesn't take me out of the movie uh, when I'm watching it. There's the odd shot here or there where it isn't quite as, as sharp as it would be if they were working on it now but i i think it was quite ambitious what they did so i want to give that credit i love i love that music score it was the same year as the lion king which i didn't mention in the introduction there it lost for music score to the lion king and it kind of makes sense i mean in an average year either one of those scores would be a, a career achievement and Hans zimmer won for for the lion king and it'd be tough to to choose one between those two so gary sinise we haven't talked about yet he did get an oscar nomination for best supporting actor to this day the only time he's been nominated uh, what do you think about him uh, playing Lieutenant Dan? It, you know, it was certainly the film that put him on my personal map, you know, and, you know, when, and then you start digging and researching performers that you admire and whose work and you like, you realize, oh, he's a theater guy. Like he's Steppenwolf, Chicago. He, a lot of his interests in terms of playwrights, whether, you know, Sam Shepard and he did obviously another 
very famous pairings with John Malkovich, who I also admired when I was in university. And so getting to dig up footage of them doing True West and they did Of Mice and Men. And so, yeah, Forrest Gump really opened my eyes to who Sinise was and then made me certainly follow what he was doing, everything after that. And he's good. He's really good in it. Yes, I I think I I was, because I've been so distracted, you know, not distracted, but I've always seem to focus on Hanks and Wright and I think I was so shocked that Wright wasn't getting as much awards attention that yeah. when Sinise got in I kind of thought well this is I, I didn't it's it is actually quite a challenging role it's it's just it's quite subtle too but I was I was less focused on well he got in why didn't she get in because you know he's he's a big part of the movie but he's part of a certain fraction of the movie whereas Jenny's presence even when she's not on screen is important from pretty much the moment that Forrest as a little boy gets onto that bus uh, and meets her for the first time right until the end of the film and I, I just was uh, I, I guess that's maybe not fair to Gary Sinise but he he got the nomination and I, I'm glad he did I first discovered him with the film version he did with Malkovich of Of Mice and Men mm-hmm. and then I saw Malkovich in some stuff after that and then shortly after this Sinise came out with this then he was he was in Apollo 13 and he had a lot of work for a while there I, I think he got for a little while he got a little bit typecast as villains because he's, he's quite an accomplished director as well and uh, I'd kind of like to see him in more stuff. Michael T. Williamson he was very good, you know, was a very impactful character and that's one that a lot of people associate that they opened up a seafood restaurant chain <laughs> Uh, well, Baba and Gump together. Baba and Port, and I think I haven't seen Michael T. Williamson do anything quite like that since. Like he's played a cop in Heat, and he's he's been in a lot of stuff. So I, I think if you just saw that and thought that that's just what that guy could do, he, he's a very well-rounded actor. But I'm not sure. It's it's very funny, but I'm not. Except it does have. A bit of a serious payoff for sure than the Vietnam section of the film, but I don't know if it's quite as strong as the other three leads. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a little bit unfair to Baba. No, I think I think for him, just in that, that's it, more about you know just screen time. I think right because he gets introduced and as again like his his the relationship casts a, a long shadow long after he passes away in the war, which is kind of I think you know it is it's important in terms of how it affects Forrest and how Forrest lives the rest of his life, but in terms of him as an actor i think that's part of the reason why is he's actually not in it all that long and, you know if there are examples of people getting lots of great press for seven minutes or eight minutes of screen time but in, in this case i think it's just it's comes in he does the job he does it well and then it's at the first third of the movie and so we don't see him anymore yeah. where with gary sinise you know playing lieutenant down we get him coming back throughout right. the rest of the journey yeah i think i think everybody's good sally field has i think is well within her range to play Forrest's mother they had been actually uh, in a previous movie where there were stand-up comics and were love interests so it was kind of interesting than sally field playing his mother <laughs> uh, at, uh all these years later her scenes like that I, again I, as i get older maybe i become a little bit more sensitive to things but the scene where Forrest comes and and talks to her and and she knows that she's dying and they're having that last conversation that we see on screen. There's some pretty heartbreaking moments in there too. And I, yeah, you know, agreed. I, it, it's quite effective what she does. But again, I I really think that Hanks and Wright acting wise are the reason to see the show. Yeah, I think some people kind of dismiss Forrest Gump as a very like light movie or uh, melodramatic movie, and there's some some real darkness in there as well, mixed in with the sentiment. Yeah. I 
Agreed. And so to me, I, some of the darker themes in here or the, the bigger themes of is everybody destined to live this life or do you create your own life? I think those are really interesting concepts. And I mean, dealing with the the, the, the hidden abuse of the 1950s that would happen and, the, you know, the darker side of some of these nostalgic times in America. I don't think it's necessarily fully a raw, raw is in America great. I think there's some much more complex stuff going on uh, in the film. And I, I also, like, I knew Zemeckis was was good at technical filmmaking. I mean, Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, of course. But I think this was the first one where I kind of could see that he could handle much more serious material. And so since then, I think he, he has tried to take on movies like Flight, which deal with alcoholism and heroism in not a sort of a, a simple manner. And uh, I also reviewed Contact recently, too. And like if you look at a few movies like that, I think you'd see he, he's more than just a popcorn filmmaker. That said, I I will stop at saying that he deserved Best Director for this movie. I, I think there's a couple other folks we're going to talk about that I, I think maybe weren't necessarily as flashy with their direction, but I think did maybe a, a, a better job of as far as a, an argument for a Best Director Oscar. But again, it was the year of Forrest Gump in many ways. And at that time, it's changed a little, little bit the last few years with their, how they do the voting. But it used to be pretty much Best Director and Best Picture together were a lock. And I think that's kind of what happened here. Yeah, I think in his case, too, I think you know it's just a theory of mine it's kind of similar like with the momentum that kind of went with tom hanks's performance i think with this one is this was zemeckis kind of stepping out from behind spielberg's shadow and kind of oh he's not just the master's apprentice anymore like he stepped out and kind of did something on his own that really turned heads and i think that might have been as much what made people want to vote for him for those in the academy that that did so was that it uh it, it pleasantly surprised some people that it wasn't just the tech stuff and the special effects, but that it had a heart and it also had some political and social commentary woven in. And ironically, this was the year after Schindler's List, so Spielberg was right there to present Zemeckis with the Oscar. Yeah, and even when he opened up the envelope, uh, he addressed Zemeckis' son and said, guess what, your dad's an Academy Award winner, and come on up. <laughs> did it. So it was almost like the passing of one generation of popcorn filmmaker to the other, working in this serious role realm here so again yeah. it's not the worst best director choice that they've made but and i think we have four other movies to talk about in there uh, <laughs> there's a lot of great stuff in these other films too there are one or two things you need for a successful wedding tact so john how's that, how's that gorgeous girlfriend of yours oh uh, she's no longer my girlfriend ah yeah Still, I wouldn't get too gloomy about it. Rumor has it she never stopped bonking old Toby Delisle, just in case you didn't work out. She is now my wife. A discreet best man. When Bernard told me he was getting engaged to Lydia, I, I congratulated him because all his other girlfriends had been such complete dogs. <laughs> Although, may I say how, how, how delighted we are to have so many of them here this evening. Delightful guests. How do you do? My name is Charles. Don't Ridiculous. Charles died 20 years ago. Must be a different Charles, I think. Are you telling me I don't know my own brother? No, no. An experienced vicar. Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Goat. Ghost. And a loving bride. I do. Ah! A film with a message. 
don't get married. Unless you fall recklessly in love. What do you think? Divine. Hugh Grant and Andy McDowell invite you to four weddings and a funeral. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Early in 1994, I don't want to say it was kind of in the spring, kind of this little British film came out of nowhere and became a, a huge box office success. And that momentum carried through into the award season. And that's Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it introduced the world. He had been in a few other movies before that, but he'd been kind of flirting with leading man potential. But it introduced the world to Hugh Grant. Andy McDowell was the token American in the film. She was very well established at this time. And essentially, it's about a bachelor who pretty much thinks he's never going to get married who encounters this American woman who he gradually starts to fall in love with over the course of four weddings and a funeral uh, it's written by Richard Curtis who I'm a fan of if you're a fan of Mr. Bean I think you're a fan of Richard Curtis as well as Rowan Atkinson who appears in the film and it was directed by Mike Newell interesting uh, career he's had he, this was kind of a big movie for him and he directed Donnie Brasco after this I, I thought he was on his way to kind of a little bit more of being part of like a David Fincher type of club or or something like that but you know I would say Four Weddings is his most famous film as a as a director but I, I think the screenplay by Richard Curtis combined with the the charm and the humor of Hugh Grant and then just some wonderful character actor performances by some of the future up-and-coming major stars of British cinema made Four Weddings and a Funeral so much more than just a, a rom-com and there's actually like a real sarcastic edge to the film which almost suggests that there's no real point in, in weddings and getting married is almost the theme of the movie Curtis himself said that you know he got so sick and tired of going to weddings every weekend that that's where the idea for this movie came from and he so took out all of his resentment towards these events out in this screenplay so I, I, I love it I find it hilarious I, I was wondering if revisiting it after a few years if I would see a little bit of the, the creaks and moans maybe there's a few in there but I, I'm a big fan of Four Weddings and a Funeral. I think it was a, a surprise Best Picture nominee, but yet I wasn't surprised when the nominations came out that year. It seemed to make sense. There seemed to be such a momentum for this film because it was like the little British movie that could. Polly Graham certainly wasn't uh, the uh, the monster that Miramax was at the time. But they, I guess they had enough of a, a solid Oscar campaign to, to get in there with Four Weddings. So I'm a fan. Uh, I might have a few criticisms along the way here, but uh, what do you think about Four Weddings and a Funeral? I'm glad that we, you know, by doing this particular year that I rewatched it, because there were some bits I'm like, I don't remember the scene. Like, I don't think I have, it's not had the rewatch factor that I have with all the other ones. Yeah. In part, 
because I think, you know, I didn't see it that year it came out. I didn't see it until shortly after when it came out on video. And then it was just never one I, I owned. But yeah, the cast is great. Like Kristen Scott Thomas is one of my favorites. Simon Callow, you know, and then again, you know, John Hanna's in there. Like it's a whole bunch of really great actors who show up again and again and again. Just from a structure standpoint, I like it. I know it's simple, but it's like, all right, here's what happens around this wedding. And then we're going to, you know, some time passes. And now we're going to meet all these essentially same group of people. And here's what's changed between the last time you saw them and now. Um, repetition. Because Hugh Grant, he's late for all of these things. And, and they play up on that through throughout and there's some really great uh, serious dramatic hits in here i mean not just in the funeral moment there's some disappointments you know as close as you are to comedy you're close to tragedy you mentioned john hannah uh, and that's that speech he gives in the funeral scene and the poem is just unbelievable and i remember that that got repeated i, I was still in high school when the movie came out i, I remember like a lot of people at my school were quite moved by that scene and would look up the poem and even the, the like the music the soundtrack which was got a lot of airtime yeah I, I think it's kind of a, a bit of a gem of a film and i'm not sure as many people have watched this there, there are two of the five that i think haven't gotten you know as much of a, a legacy i guess yeah and I, I don't know if we've had too many kind of copycats or repeat movies like this that it feels like just just one of them but it was almost like a pioneer in this in this regard yeah it, I, yeah, I would agree with all those points. Yeah, it's it was a pleasant surprise. Like I knew I liked it when I watched it the first time, but it's like, oh yeah, why haven't I rewatched this one more often? And maybe you know, it just didn't have the same kind of push as some of the other ones. And maybe I'd feel differently had I. You know, if this one was playing on a loop at the Place Real Theater and I'd gone to see it as many times as I did some of the other ones. But, you know, it was good. It was really good to watch it again. And you can pick it up and watch it at any point, I think. Like, it doesn't feel, like, apart from the way it looks in terms of, the like, the film quality over time, you could probably do this movie in any decade since, right? And I think, actually, I think there might actually be a remake of it being made. Was I, it I, a show? I think a TV show or a miniseries was, right. of course, I haven't watched it. But uh, yeah, I'm curious what they do. Sometimes I'm a little bit nervous about those things, but sometimes they work out. I think this could also be adapted for the stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Easy. I think it would be a, a terrific, like a really fun production to put on. Maybe I, I watched it a lot that particular year. I mean, I, I, I don't know when I ended up, if I kept renting it or like what, what happened, why I watched it so many times. I think who I was at that time, and I think this seeped into my university stuff a little bit. I saw the Hugh Grant role as something that I could maybe do as an actor you know mm -hmm. stammering guy who's a little bit cynical and that kind of thing i think that became even more pronounced when like in Notting hill and mickey blue eyes a few years later and uh, the work that he did I'm, I'm happy to see him back he's taking on a lot more uh, some pretty dark roles these days that lawrence foster jenkins movie kind of brought him back to people's attention but the tv work he's doing right now is, is extraordinary and I, i'm just happy to see him back working you know i am sure he was always working when way or the other but it he just kind of fell off of the mainstream map for a little while probably like a like a mcconaughey or something trying to get out of being that rom-com leading man guy because it was diminishing returns with some of the, the projects he would he got from the years after this yeah well, he like for me where i kind of went oh yeah that's interesting not that he again not that he wasn't doing interesting work but where i kind of sat up again it was a supporting many supporting parts was in cloud nine some of the characters he played in that i'm like this is really interesting 
interesting. That being said, I still think he has probably given one of the best comedic performances in of all movies, Paddington 2. We watched that together as a family a few years ago. And he is absolutely bonkers. And it is one of the funniest performances I've ever seen. I'm like, he can. He literally can do it all if, if you yeah. I'll give him the opportunity to do it. I think you find the right role for him. He, he's, he's, he's not complete. Well, actually, I, I can't say that completely because I, I saw, I to remember the title of it, the last Guy Ritchie film that came out last year, The Gentleman. I don't know if you've seen that. No, I haven't seen that one yet. No, and they, they didn't really advertise a whole lot that he's in it. He does kind of disappear into a completely different character than I, I I thought he could handle. But I think every other time I see him, you're, you're pretty aware that this is Hugh Grant playing this character. And that's maybe, he got compared early in his career to Cary Grant in that that regard. Uh, but I, I really get excited. I'll see anything that he's in, even if it's bad. I mean, I saw that, what was that one where they were in the witness relocation program with Sarah Jessica Parker? Right. Yeah, yeah it, it was dirt dumb, but I, I was just happy to see a Hugh Grant movie. So I guess I'm maybe a, a blind fan of, of his, and I was kind of cheer for him a bit. Yeah. Well, not to pivot too much too, but quite often, you know, and it has problematic uh, moments too, but we often will watch Love Actually during the holidays is one of our go-to films and again it's like yeah that's probably the best casting they, they did in trying to find a british prime minister who people could get behind and like i just wanted to mention rowan atkinson you know some people only think he can do mr bean uh, he is and you see him early on when he's in a, a little bit awkward uh and he's kind of shadowing the priest who's going to do <laughs> <laughs> and then he ends up, I believe it's the second wedding that he officiates. And uh, it is just one of the just funniest scenes in the movie as he stammers and struggles his way through. It's a simple gag, but because it's so well handled by a, a comedic genius, it feels very fresh, even watching the movie all these years later. We should probably, again, I, I feel like there's a danger with all five of these movies. We could be gushing a little bit too much. What did you see as kind of a, a weakness with this movie? It does, at least compared to the other ones you know it, it is a movie apart which i guess also could maybe be its, its virtue and its strength I, as well as it was acted there is the scene uh, Kristen scott thomas uh, her character fiona there's kind of the admission that the person that she's loved all along is is hugh grant and that was kind of the one time where i went like ah this scene hey like i like and it had nothing to do with the way they did it and that kind of unrequited love can be a powerful story hook because you know we've probably all been there at some stage in your life or another where you, know, you like the person and they just don't like you the same way back but i just kind of was in a movie that kind of felt like he was doing um, some refreshing takes on relationships and things like that. That was kind of the part where I kind of made me step out for a second. And, and I felt like, oh, do we need that? I think that whole third wedding is maybe, for some reason, the weakest section of the film for me. I, I like the first two weddings and right. the funeral is obviously very well handled in that mix of comedy and tragedy. And then the last one's kind of the payoff to the film for sure. Yeah, that, that section has had some issues. I, I guess uh, there, there are a couple bits that I think it was maybe auto-correcting when I was a kid because I was, I was such a fan of the movie that I wanted everybody to love everything about it. Watching Andy McDowell this time, she just seemed a little bit uncomfortable or stiff in her performance. Some of her line delivery, I, I'm not quite sure why that is. Yeah, yeah, and it's not about me not liking her as a performer. I like her in tons of movies and I love her in Groundhog Day. Uh, yeah, but there was a couple moments actually my daughter at one point when we were watching this one together too, she's like, why does he like her? Like she he couldn't, she couldn't like, like I don't, I don't get it. I'm not all I could say was, well, sometimes you can't help who you like. And yeah. 
Um, so, you know, even, you know, my 12 year old was kind of like, yeah. I don't, I don't get this. The other part that I don't think I, I was as, and maybe it's the offshoot of all these copycats and all these American rom-coms or whatever. I have absolutely no idea why she drags Hugh Grant along to try on wedding dresses. There's that whole sequence that doesn't, I mean, it, it's a chance for her to show off all these weird dresses and then he can comment on them and they show, oh, they're, you know, they have great chemistry together or whatever, but it just makes no sense. This is somebody that you had a couple one night stands with. This is not the person that you would go to. There's got to be some other people. I know that she was the American and she didn't know a lot of people in London, but that that felt a little bit phony to me that that would be in there. And I I think the the last scene I like some of some of the sentiments I guess of the of the last scene, but it's rainy. They put in this cheesy musical score and have this moment which I feel like is a, a little bit beneath Richard Curtis and and both of those actors but that's probably the moment that you know one kind of the made it a box office hit it was the emotional payoff i guess for those who are there for the romance as opposed to everything else and i'd, I'd like more people to check this one out if you can get, get your hands on on four weddings and a funeral it's a little bit harder than it used to be i'm a big fan and not surprisingly i'm a big fan of all of these but this is one that i think i'd like to champion a little bit more stand by going to air stand by film. five stand by music. four stand by three two one and up. presents the exciting quiz program, 21. Give me the name of the explorer who discovered Mozambique. Vasco da Gama? Correct, for 10 points. Stemple is an underdog. You know, people root for that. It wasn't her be terrific. Have you seen the ratings? I'd like you to meet next week's challenger, Charles Van Doren. Oh. How much do they pay instructors up at Columbia? $86 a week. Do you have any idea how much Bozo the Clown makes? Gotta be James J. Braddock. Correct, you have 21! Is this guy a natural or what? He's a natural. <laughs> $20,000! What if we would ask you questions that you know? Well, I think I'd really rather try to beat him honestly. Just an idea. Was that part of the test? <laughs> yes, I know his name. Halleck, General H.W. Halleck. You have 21! I'm constantly amazed at the facts these guys have at their fingertips. It's been nine weeks now. And you've won how much? $93,000. Sir, I smell something. That little box in your living room is plugged into something crooked. You lose when I tell you to lose. Now I'm supposed to take a dive? You know, you got these crackpots coming out of the woodwork. You don't have a shred of concrete evidence. Young man, I am the president of the National Broadcasting Company. I have you. And why are you the one that's sweating? Let him out, boys. Charles Van Dorn hails from one of the most prominent intellectual families in this country. Dick's on a witch hunt. He thinks 21 is rigged. Is it? You should see the letters I get. Kids are excited about learning. You set a real example for all us boys to look up to. Just sign the statement. Sign the statement, her. Sign the statement. Who cares if it's true, huh? Heck. Damn. If someone offered you all this money, would you do it? No. And I would. Professor, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask for your answer.
I really like Robert Redford as certainly as a movie star, as an actor, as an activist. But I actually think he's actually one hell of a great film director, too. Some of the maybe some of the controversy I've addressed this when I reviewed A River Runs Through It with him is that in his very first movie or first official movie that he was uh, credited as a director was Ordinary People. Mm -hmm. And he won Best Director and it won Best Picture over Raging Bull, which history has dictated is a much better film. Um, I think it's close. I, it's it's a great movie, but Raging Bull is just that much better, and Scorsese was that much more deserving of, of Best Director as well. But that doesn't take away from the fact that Redford is a very confident style. He's not as flashy. He's a little bit more subtle, just like it seems like the man himself. I don't know him myself, but how he appears to be. And I actually, my favorite film that he's directed or favorite uh, directorial job he's done is in fact the movie we're going to be talking about quiz show which is about a scandal in the 1950s where they discovered that at nbc on this game show quiz show called 21 that uh there were people behind the scenes that were manipulating the results based on who was playing well to the ratings to be the champion at that particular time. And we see that play out as we take a look at a, a, a young lawyer named Richard Goodwin, uh, played by Rob Morrow, a guy who still works, but he, at the time he was really hot because of a TV show called Northern Exposure. I think he's quite good in the movie. I, I, I like seeing him in, in films. And then he uh, investigates this fixed game show and uh, Charles Van Doren, played by uh, the great Ray Fiennes, is is from this very prominent family, academic family in New York, and he ends up on that show and becomes a champion. And as it turns out, we soon discover that he is very much aware and is part of the, the cheating scandal. The other piece I want to talk about is the previous champion is this uh, kind of schluppy guy from Brooklyn named Herbie Stemple, played by John Turturro, who is an actor I just uh, absolutely love. I, I think he gives the performance of the movie, even though this cast is is extraordinary. He was a guy that had a lot of Oscar buzz around him. He didn't end up getting nominated and I can't, and you're a Shakespeare Shakespeare guy, so I don't think you object to the fact that uh, the great Paul Schofield got a Best Supporting Actor nomination. He plays Mark Van Doren, Ray Fiennes' father in this, and he has a couple just unbelievable scenes where he just steals sections of the movie. But Totoro is featured a lot more and is quite a significant character. I, I could go on and on with the faces in this movie from Hank Azaria, David Paymer. And by the way, like, you know that you're uh, a great director when you have cameos by Martin Scorsese and Barry Levinson. Just some of the great filmmakers weren't behind the scenes directing this movie that they decided to take on roles and be actors in this film. This is the one I think even more than Four Weddings and a Funeral that's been kind of forgotten about. And I'm an enormous fan. I I thought actually like I the awards momentum for this movie was much bigger than Four Weddings and a Funeral and later on we're going to talk about the Shawshank Redemption. Not a lot of people would even remember that Quiz Show was A, a film or B, nominated in that significant that particular year. Revisiting it, I was, again, it's kind of interesting going back here, but I still maintain it is one of the strongest films in this group of five and I, it's kind of like my dark horse. It's the one I am going to, I don't know if I'm going to oversell it, but I'm really 
really going to champion it in the show. So I, I love Quiz Show. Uh, what what'd you think about it? Yeah, I, again, it, it's similar to Four Weddings for me in that I hadn't rewatched it in a long time. It was a bit more fresh coming back to it than Four Weddings and a Funeral. I was still pleasantly surprised by the Scorsese uh, scenes at the end uh, in, in terms of the uh, the hearings. I'm like, oh my god, I totally forgot that he shows up in it, uh, and he's good. He's, he's yeah, he, he's a good actor. I mean, a lot of people I I talked about when I reviewed Taxi Driver, his you know one scene role in that. I mean, he, he actually knows how to, how to act. And he plays uh, kind of this, the head of this Geritol, which is the main commercial sponsor for the show, who has a lot of say in like who are the the people on the show that uh, are attractive that he wants to represent his product through winning on the game show. Like it, it really is a great satire in how it criticizes how network television is so influenced by their sponsors and the commercialism, which of course has become each decade more and more of a factor. Yeah, that's Scorsese's role in there, and he, he's very good. And everyone's great. And, and yeah, Schofield it was is a big plus for me just because you know, he didn't appear in films all that often, really. No. And especially you know later in his career, he didn't do that many. So the fact when like, when these when someone like him gets drawn into a film, it's like well, obviously there's something here to to get him to say yes. And some of those father son scenes are just fantastic. Yeah, down the stretch, heartbreaking I, I, too. Yeah. And I you know I love how Redford he, he paces his films. I don't know, like I don't feel like they're slow, but they're not compared to something like Pulp Fiction with Tarantino, which is you know it has its moments of quiet as well, and and it's a long movie. So, but he's got something about his internal clock that just runs faster. Someone like Redford, I'm like, yeah, I could probably watch a a movie festival of Redford films and just feel really great by the end of the day and not feel like I've been taxed. He's you know, he obviously was keeping an eye on things all those years as an actor and turned into a really great director. That's not always the uh, the end result. I, I What else do I want to say about it? I think it's interesting holding it up against a film like Forrest Gump, too, that year. And I think that's kind of the interesting counterpoint is that year you had this film that ultimately went on to win. And the main character is not some kind of special quote-unquote special individual he's not high ranking he doesn't have money he's not super smart and yet he has this amazing life and has this huge impact on the world and then you watch quiz show and he comes from privilege he comes from a family and yet what's actually getting him most notoriety is technically all a lie and he struggles with it and i guess at the end what is great is to watch him you finally have someone set up or sit you know he's sitting in the hearing of course but essentially stand up and do what's right and say yeah i've lied to you wall and i'm sorry and you know, obviously it destroys him and his family name to a certain extent moving forward but he does the right thing and again not to spoil it but it, you know this i would encourage people to see this movie i'm not sure this is like a, a plot twist type of thing but no that scene at the end too which is so interesting i mean there's there's a contrast between when john totoro when herbie comes in and he he testifies and then he gets nothing but ridicule from the politicians and then you know at the end charles van doren does his apology and then there's a, a whole series of well i've never heard such well-worded testimony and what a great young man you are etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you know that last guy says well i come from a different part of the city and i'm not sure if somebody of your intellect your education should be congratulated for at long last telling the truth huge applause 
And the other piece too is it could have all been avoided too. Yeah. As the story goes along, Rob Morrow, who kind of is the first guy to he kind of is figuring out that something shady here and he starts to investigate it and he gets more stonewalled and stonewalled and then he uncovers the lies. He becomes buddies with Van Doren and he gives him an out. He says, we don't want to call you up. We have enough evidence here. Just stay, keep your profile low. But Van Doren can't help but go on television. He's had this contract after he's off the show with NBC to do the segment on the Today Show or whatever. And he just can't help but go on television and cause a problem. And then and then his hands are tied. He has to go up and testify and it kind of ruins his life. And then that's a moment where, and again, I think I was so teenage version of me and the version of me now, I, I think I was very focused on like the flashier roles and seeing Rafe flying because he was, you know, it was the year after Schindler's List and mm -hmm. seeing him something completely different. And Rob Morrow and John Turturro and all these performances, I, I wasn't watching how good Schofield was. I think that nomination threw me for a loop back then. I was fully expecting to see John Turturro on that list, but then uh, but then watching it now, there's a moment after that big scene where they're facing the reporters and and it's you know they're getting the news for the first time that Charles Van Doren has been asked to step down from teaching at Columbia University, which is so important to his father, and just. This tragic look, it was as as tragic as if he was performing Shakespeare. It was, it was subtle, and, and Redford's direction of it was subtle, but that's kind of the essence of that performance, and that's why it's... I can see now why he was nominated, and also just what you said about he, he very choosy with, with film roles at this particular uh, point in his, his career. Yeah, and the other scene that, that's just jumping to mind, too, as we're talking about it, there's a great moment, too, right? Like, with... Well, he has many great moments with Turturro playing uh, playing Herbie, where it's interesting, he gets sucked into being addicted to the attention at first from the TV show, and then all of a sudden he feels like, oh, he's winning some people over with his testimony, and and you know he kind of gets again drawn in and addicted to the attention and gets off track, and you know it, it does not again someone who thinks it's going to turn out a certain way for him, and he gets the rug pulled out from under him. Yeah. And the scene I, I love uh, is when he's talking with his wife when he finds he admits to her that is like well she's like so this whole time you were getting the answers too it was a scene with rob morrow where rob was saying oh come on it's all been proven or whatever like how could you possibly know and then he says because i i got the answers and i can testify and you see his wife's reaction i think she actually leaves doesn't she leave he turns back and she's she's left and tutorial like he, he's such a good actor like he he's a bit more of a chameleon i mean think of uh you know jesus in the big lebowski, big lebowski yeah compared to this compared to something like The Night Of. I've, I don't know if you've seen that uh, miniseries. He, he is a really good actor. And you can understand why the frustration with this guy is very smart, but he's also very annoying. And you can sort of see why why the suits didn't feature him as being kind of like the television spokesman of this show for the 1950s. And they liked the idea of having Charles Van Doren because of the name of the family and good-looking guy up there instead and try to try to work things out so that, that he, he wins and becomes the new champion. But Totoro's tragedy, like, I mean, Kirby could answer the question correctly and win and defeat Van Doren. And he, he thinks that he's he's going to be given something from the television industry after this if he uh, takes a dive. It's a really interesting movie, complex movie. I think it's a good one. A lot of people feel satire is always funny. And uh, I, I like satire, which has a, a bit of a serious edge. So this isn't a really a funny movie. It's a, it's a serious movie and a tragedy. But I think it's a good one to show to young people, if I'm 
I'm going to teach satire. I've used it in media studies classes, but also the impact of uh, commercialism on television and how powerful a medium television is and was at that particular time. So big ideas handled by just an absolute professional directors. I think I was kind of hoping that Quiz Show, it was giving more than just a nominated film, that there, there were a few areas where I think it, you could have justified giving it at least one Oscar. Big fan. Anything else you want to say about Quiz Show? No, I'm good to, to, to move on to the next. I encourage people to check it out. Seek it out. It's well worth your time. Miramax Films is proud to present one of the most celebrated motion pictures of the year. The winner of the 1994 Palme d'Or. The best picture of the Cannes Film Festival. Getting big man's wife. Well, he's going out of town, Florida, and he asked me if I take care of him while he's gone. Take care of him? No, man. Just make sure it's a good time, make sure she don't get lonely. Girl, you see, this is a moral test of oneself. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. I love you so much, can't count on the You can maintain loyalty. Night of the fight, you may feel a slight sting. Pride only hurts, it never helps. In the fifth, your ass goes down. I have to say, you play with matches, you get burned. We should have shotguns with this kind of deal. We're in a lot of danger, aren't we? I'm prepared to scout the earth for that night. Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Get down, get down. You got a corpse in a car, minus a head in the garage. Take me to it. Don't you hate that? Hate what? Uncomfortable silences. John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, Maria de Medeiros, Bing Ring. Eric Stoltz, Rosanna Arquette, Christopher Walker, and Bruce Willis. Looking at something, friend? Ain't my friend, looking. Die, you mother! A new film directed by Quentin Tarantino. Pulp Fiction. You really thinking about quitting? Most definitely. Of course you're going to do that. Basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane and Kung Fu. <laughs> Guaranteed the very first movie of this group of five sky that you watched with your daughter was Paul Fitt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, number one. Yeah, she's like that one's I, rated like R, right? And I'm like, yeah, you can't see this I, one. I told her that. I think it still is rated R even now. So I, um, I have a story, but I, I have I did review this on uh, Larry Parsons' uh, podcast, Rank and Review. Everybody should check it out. Sky and I have both been on there, and I told the story of I, I don't know how this happened, but you remember the Town Cinema? It's where the Roxy Theater is now in Saskatoon on on 20th Street, and it was Christmas time of '94, and I had spent months 
you know, since the summer, I would hear nothing but Pulp Fiction is the movie of the year. Of course, it was still, it was with this rating system restricted, no one under 18 admitted. So I couldn't get in even with a parent. But over the holidays, for some reason, my uncle and my dad decided they would take me to this and we would attempt to go in there. And without a problem, for some reason, I I mean, I... You're a pretty tall I, dude. I was a young looking guy. I looked like I That's was true. 10 years old probably at that time. But no question asked, three of us were able to walk in and I legitimately got to see Pulp Fiction. The second time I saw it was at the Paradise Theater, which uh, long since gone, where they would have, you know, three movies for one price. Um, maybe that's why they went under, I guess. But um <laughs> We used to love going there where I, I had to, I, I lied a little bit, kind of snuck into that one for the second time. So I'll admit that sin right now. I later worked in a movie theater. So where I was catching people doing stuff like that. But, but anyway, I, I got to, to see this thing that I had been waiting to see forever. And, you know, really three months for two <laughs> at that age felt like forever to me. And it blew my mind that a screenplay could be that surprising and that good. And when we get late in the film, everybody kind of knows now that Tarantino makes movies out of sequence and things are all connected together. I was just like, oh, that we're in the same restaurant as the very first scene. Oh, I forgot about that scene at the beginning, but Tim Roth was in it and Amanda Plummer. And so that was important. Now I get why it's important. Now it's, I, I get the whole thing of what's happening. And it, it just blew my mind mind that a the movie could be that good and that surprising it was violent lots of f words that's still the case i think you know uh maybe the violence now because i i've had students who are movie fans and then i talk about pulp fiction sometimes i get a little bit sad because then they'll see it and they'll, what, what's the big deal with that you know because there have been so many copycats and right. the violence now doesn't seem to have as much impact i guess as it did back in 94 but people have known for years i think it's the best screenplay ever written it's one of my favorite movies of all time so i'll be gushing about this movie uh, uh through this whole thing so it's probably best that i mention what i think is the one weakness and then i'll hopefully get some perspective from you on this one <laughs> I think some things in there are dated, are very exclusive to 1994. I think kids watching that movie now, uh, kids or young adults, are like, why is John Travolta making a big deal of a $5 milkshake? <laughs> that doesn't seem that expensive right. now. But in 94, that seemed absolutely ridiculous. And, and and so all the jokes about you put bourbon in it or whatever, all of that to me was just so brilliant in 94. But now that's like, that's a pretty good deal for a milkshake, $5? Yeah, sure. And just looks, uh, the hair and that kind of thing, uh, I guess, can is a little bit dated. But it, it's a movie that's a lot of fun. Three stories in one, but all kind of interconnected. Vincent Vega and uh, Mrs. Marcellus Wallace, which is about John Travolta, who's this goofy henchman who takes out the boss's wife and everything goes wrong on this date. Then The Gold Watch, which is about Bruce Willis, who has had this history where... <laughs> His grandfather and his father in various wars had to hide their this gold watch up their ass and <laughs> And he's a boxer who gets in bad with the mob and his gold watch gets left behind by his girlfriend and he's then on a quest to get that, which leads to some of the weirdest and most unexpected moments in the film. And uh, then the Bonnie situation, which is again about Vincent Vega, John Travolta and Jules Winfield, the great Samuel L. Jackson, who do a job and then Travolta, spoilers, but one of the funniest I've ever seen, accidentally they have a tragedy where somebody gets killed 
killed out in the open in the middle of the freeway in Los Angeles and they have to solve this problem and again that leads to all of these great moments with some of the most original and wonderful characters all very well played I'm gushing so Give me some perspective, Sky. What do you think uh, of both? Yeah, no, it's still one of my very favorite films, too. I, I had seen fairly recently before this, so probably around... I don't know, maybe a year-ish? Not when it came out, but Reservoir Dogs. I mean, it was like New Year's Eve. I was at a party with some friends, and it kind of died down, and there was like four of us left. And I was like, oh, hey, have you seen this film? And I was like, no, I don't, had never heard of it. And so we watched Reservoir Dogs, and I was like, holy crap. Yeah. So like right then, I you know became smitten with, with Tarantino. And like more so with his dialogue than anything else. I just yeah. love the, the back and forth that he gives his characters, and how it's funny without being you know c- comedic in a comedy style so i was pretty pumped when this came out and so obviously that one dealt with things in terms of non-linear but not in the same way like it didn't do this kind of like whole you know we get a whole jump you see jules and vincent wearing these ridiculous outfits and then you have to wait forever to find out like you end up seeing again spoiler alerts but you see vincent vega's death before you get to see the the explanation of why he was in that outfit when he was and yeah yeah this is a movie where you kind of those who watched and were just not used to this structure were like how did he come back from the dead (laughs) (laughs) so that was that was interesting too but again like he it becomes something he's well known for but his use of music like particular tracks of periods and sometimes he's pulling songs that don't belong or don't seem to belong to the period that they're in but they're totally right for the moment or thematically or you know they're doing something for the character or the story at large yeah this is one of the ones like i went back and watched it over and over and over again when many 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 times and such a great cast and you see these people like it's christopher nolan kind of does it too i call it the christopher nolan effect and i call it that quite often when i'm directing a play i try to have at least one if not more than one people from the last project i was in in the next one like i love this idea of having an ensemble people who carry over yet you're introducing new people and then those people could be in a project down the road and you're kind of creating this you know maybe family is too strong of a word but a team that kind of knows each other shorthand and that's tarantino was doing it before christopher nolan was he went yeah. to certain actors he was writing for certain actors like so to see yeah um, like, uh, rose up and tim roth and uh Keitel and but even know. buscemi in like the cameo as buddy holly at the restaurant like he just gets him bricks him in there real quick yeah I, I really it was great re-watching this one again there's so many moments that i just quote or amend and still kind of quote it just in my everyday life like you you mentioned the milkshake scene like i'd be could like you know my wife could have made her carbonara for supper and i'll have a bite and I'm like oh, that's damn good carbonara like i'll take the his response to the milkshake and i just make it about whatever i happen to be eating and drinking in that moment like we do that all the time and if i'm introducing somebody if like if you and i are out it's like and this is like i'll do the introduction like the dance competition <laughs> just so many things that have been integrating like integrated into my just everyday uh, vernacular and it goes back to this film i mean i've often throughout my life taken a hand at, at writing and writing dialogue and writing plays i've tried screenplays as well but i feel a little bit more more experience more comfortable writing for the stage but in the dialogue i create i i find myself 
copying Tarantino's style without realizing that I'm doing it until afterwards I'm like I'm trying to do those big speech run-on sentences that he that he does where you have an actor who's particularly cool and can deal with that whole mouthful of dialogue and and, and make it work like I think the two best at it personally are Samuel Jackson and Christoph Waltz not everybody can do that and so then when I work with I, I do that and then I realize I've done it when I give the dialogue to actors and they're trying to choke down this, this thing is like could, could we like cut half the words and try to make this a little bit more concise and purposeful so yeah because he he just has he can get away with it and others try to copy it and just what probably the, for for the age he was too such an influential filmmaker and i mean i recently re- reviewed reservoir dogs i think i was coming off a, a little bit hard on it just because of who he is but i admired the independent spirit but to go from reservoir dogs to the next movie you direct is pulp fiction to to me, I know some people like dogs more than they like Pulp Fiction, but there was a huge leap. I think Pulp Fiction was cinematic. Reservoir Dogs felt like an independent film, and I, I know back in the university, you sort of a production of it because it felt like it worked really well on stage, uh, the, kind of the way it's structured, and it felt like uh, you know it, it's a little bit bigger than a play on film. But Pulp Fiction is not something where I think you could put it on the stage. Maybe you can now, but as easily you could have certain scenes in certain moments. But, you know, I, I just think it was just a giant leap as a director. I'm not sure I, I the screenplay, was, I, was, I always kind of went to the screenplay a little bit more than his direction. Over the years, I've really started to appreciate, you mentioned the pace, but also some of the things he does. Have you watched it? When would you say was the last time you watched Pulp Fiction in a movie theater? Oh, geez. It might have in the in a movie. I didn't see any of these times where they brought it back for like anniversaries. Yeah. So I may have seen it the last time in a movie theater. It might have been like ninety five. Could be. Yeah. I uh, they would have like these digital film festivals, and so I think probably mo- once or twice I've I've seen it since on the big screen. And there's always something in that form, like in that format, that I discover that I had never discovered before. And I've watched this movie a lot. But if you listen very closely in the very first scene, great scene with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer, in surround sound, you can hear Samuel L. Jackson's voice in clips of his conversation with John Travolta, John Travolta which happens at the That's exact right. time. But right. we don't see that scene in that until, you know, two hours later. And so it's just the, the ambition of that. And for such a young filmmaker, his second film, to be able to to balance everything that well, it's, it's something that you might expect from somebody who like is the age that he is now uh, a seasoned filmmaker and so that's why I still go back to it as being his best film I think he's evolved as a director he's become you know a little bit more ambitious visually perhaps going back to sort of Inglorious Bastards and onward mm-hmm. but I still think Pulp Fiction is his best film well and I think too like with Reservoir Dogs in terms of just you marking the the, the, sh- the shift like I've always said that like that's the one that he used to get to make a movie like Pulp Fiction like he he obviously had been writing screenplays up to that point and being on things like Natural Born Killers and I think he was on True Romance too as I recall but no one was giving him or he, he was yet to get the the okay to direct something that he wrote which obviously he had now that's what he kind of does exclusively right and I, so I feel like Reservoir Dogs was like okay what can I do that's going to not cost a lot of money low risk you know what can I make with that to prove to them that I am the filmmaker that I think I am and so with you know 
you know, again, it's obviously more money than some of us would ever get a chance to play with. But he cranks off a movie like Reservoir Dogs and surprises the hell out of everybody who was paying attention. It was like, well, now guess what I could do if you give me a bit more? And then I think he finally then got to show what probably was there all along. He just needed to do a small scale thing to get to be trusted with the keys to the car. And kind of a, a fun thing about Tarantino and Scorsese is a parallel. I, I don't think their careers would have gone on like uh, jump started as much if it hadn't been for Harvey Keitel. <laughs> right. Harvey Keitel got the script and or his wife or something and he got all the people along to make Reservoir Dogs and I again recently reviewed uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door which was Scorsese's student film which he made over five years and he had the great fortune that Harvey Keitel answered an ad at that particular time to be the lead in that film and then Keitel was a big part of Scorsese's early career too so uh, you know I think Harvey Keitel should be given some credit there for <laughs> helping uh, move forward two of the greatest filmmakers ever. There's a, cute, a few things I, you know, there's so much to talk about with this movie, but a few things I just wanted kind of to point out. You know, a lot of people, this was the big comeback for John Travolta. Now people are like, oh, he needs to come back again and again. And again. Um, <laughs> Because he was kind of doing Look Who's Talking movies and that kind of thing. And I think people had given up on him and didn't realize he had this performance in him. So I think some of that, a lot of the drive of the movie initially became the comeback of John Travolta. He's fine as Vincent Vega, you know, and I enjoy what he does. I think he's maybe a little bit better at some of the comedic stuff. I mean, he does deal with quite a serious, especially in that that first story with Uma Thurman, which I'll get to. He plays those moments well and some of the scary moments all right. I really think that, you know, his comeback kind of overshadowed how great Samuel L. Jackson was in this movie and I think this kind of made Samuel L. Jackson's career I think Jackson unfortunately has become a little bit of a cartoon of himself maybe that's an unfair criticism he can be very good in a lot of different things certainly part of the Marvel Universe I, I like him in that but I and I had seen him before this of course in, in Jungle Fever and a few mm-hmm. movies that, but the power that he has like I, I still to this day do not understand why he didn't win the Academy Award for for this role I think some people weren't sure if it was a lead role or supporting but I think he he deserved it I, as much as I I reviewed Ed Wood and a movie I didn't mention that was part of this amazing year and mm-hmm. it was great and Martin Landau was a, a great performance from him but Jackson was just so so good and that's he's always a highlight for this movie I never get tired of seeing his performance I still think it's his his best work and he's been great in a lot of things yeah he and you know he kind of became for Tarantino what De Niro and then later DiCaprio kind of became for Scorsese and maybe he doesn't although Tarantino kind of does more ensemble films so I, I can't really think of anything I guess maybe Hateful Eight but there's nothing that really jumps out as Samuel L. Jackson being like the main lead character in a Tarantino film he's always important in the Tarantino films but that might be more about how Tarantino writes his stories compared to someone having like a, a lead like Scorsese likes to do I think there's an argument that he is kind of a the second in Jackie Brown. I mean, he is... He has a lot of screen time. Pam Greer is quite obviously the, the main lead in that film. And I think you're right. In Hateful Eight, even though it's an ensemble film, I, I think Jackson's the lead in that film too. But yeah, I mean, he, he's he's one of a muse of sorts for for, for Tarantino. Uh, but this this introduced that relationship. I want to mention Uma Thurman as yeah. well. And I want to mention that that first story. I, I don't, for me, <laughs> it's, it, this is how warped I am. I actually think that's the best date that's ever been captured on film. 
that ridiculous coked up heroin induced date between these two essentially these junkies who have this awkward that leads into a quite interesting conversation and then leads into this spoilers but just near tragic event where Mia Wallace the boss's wife after everything has gone as perfect as it can be to the point that Travolta is really worried that he's going to try to sleep with the boss's wife and that would basically be the end of his life while that's going on she she finds some heroin thinks it's coke and leads to one of the most graphic OD scenes I think in in film and then from there like the story takes such a different turn as being this kind of humorous I, I hate to use the word the cute in this movie there's nothing really cute about Pulp Fiction in any way shape or form <laughs> yeah, yeah. you like these characters so much and you like this date and everything is happening and then it goes just so dark so fast Tarantino is very good at that and, and so you're kind of laughing smiling but all of a sudden it's like oh whoa, whoa this is this is bad and I I think Uma Thurman's, if Robin Wright didn't win the Academy Award and she wasn't nominated, I kind of think Uma Thurman, there would have been a case for her. And just to mention another great movie from that year, Bolts Over Broadway, Woody Allen's film, Diane Weist won. She pretty much had the award the whole time. Again, it's maybe the absurdity of the award system, trying to compare those two performances. But I, I again, being a Pulp Fiction fan, I was thoroughly hoping that Uma Thurman would get credit for that. I, I think, you know, her career has been interesting. I mean, sometimes she gets better roles than others but I think she I, I like it's a shorter role in this but I, I like this better actually than her work in, Kill, in the Kill Bill films actually right right yeah, yeah. Um, someone too we haven't I just want to make sure we don't go by without mentioning like Ving Rhames is fantastic oh. too yeah. like like he certainly this is what made me know who Ving Rhames was and everything after this right because he seemed like so kind of mysterious for so long because he only got to see the back of his head sometimes and band-aid out the back yeah yeah it's like how do you get the band-aid it's like exactly you just put People the band-aid on okay what does that mean is that related to the suitcase which we never see what's in the suitcase uh, yeah so so much and like people with small parts too like frank whaley phil oh, lamar too like yeah like, it just it goes on and on and on christopher yeah. walken has one of his great weird speeches of that time i mean he's the one who tells us the story of the gold watch yeah <laughs> it's such an iconic speech like people re- repeat it or parts of it all the time and it's the only thing he's in in the movie he walks in tells the story and it's the only time you see him and I like I've watched that over and over again, and I his pace is so unusual. There's this point where I cannot understand for the life of me why Christopher Walken he has something like a 30 second pause mid sentence. <laughs> And all this monologue, like something really significant is happening. I don't know. He's looking off camera, and I don't know if he's searching for his line or if somebody's doing something that's distracting him or, or what. It works. It wouldn't work for anybody else, but that walking is so good in there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I enjoy it every time I, I go back to it. Yeah, for all sorts of reasons. I want to do a shout out to Roger Avery. A little bit controversial. He was friends with Tarantino. He was a big part of the Gold Watch story. He shared the Oscar. This was the only Oscar they won was for original screenplay. I think Tarantino wasn't that thrilled with the fact that he was given story credit and was forced to not share the stage with Roger Avery. But I, it, to me, it's the story that people don't maybe like 
as much, and I don't know if it's just a paid on for Bruce Willis or whatever. I think he's pretty good in the movie, actually. Yeah. And him and Ving Rames play off each other really well. There's just this, it's so weird, unexpected, dark. I didn't know at any time where that story was going. And to go from that walk-in speech to a boxing match to this, uh, probably, it's, I'm sure if there was kind of a, like a PC warning, it would be that, that basement sequence now and the, the portrayal of homosexual characters, I guess that, that in the S&M aspect of that. But I, I still, I, as a kid, I had no idea where that was going. And I still kind of a champion that story. It's in the middle part of the film. And if you often will put the weaker story in the middle of the film, but I think it carries over nicely between the two stories, which feature John, John Travolta a little bit more. I, I, I like the gold watch. And then like the kicker, the last story is just, it's a horrifying, violent moment, which is just so funny. That scene in the car in uh, in the Bonnie situation and everything it leads to. It ends, and you know, I think the, how, the, the book and the film, and, and obviously this leads to the way it's structured and whatnot too. But you know, it's you start in the in the the cafe, the like the the breakfast joint, and that's where you end. And it starts with a conversation between two characters, and it essentially it's ending with two other characters. And I think right, if you played it linear of what a, happens chronologically you wouldn't be satisfied with the end of the movie with bruce willis driving off on a motorcycle you know with his girlfriend to go leave la and never come back it works well you know and i think that's, that's the surprising moment isn't it when you see butch bruce willis you see butch shoot vega coming out of the washroom like it's such a crazy like what the hell is a, gu- a gun doing on the on the counter for like you've got to be kidding me plus we just killed the lead in the film right it's like a hitchcockian moment like in psycho you know uh, that that just happened wow you know i I mean, yeah. yeah. Which then also, like, for me as a fan, it, it kind of didn't really hit me until like a few viewings, but then you see that conversation between Vincent and Jules in the cafe and you as an audience member know what's going to happen to Vincent in a very short time and just a matter of like a day or you know, a couple of days. That's the payoff too, is you get to see, well, Jules is you know planning to walk away and you know what's going to happen to his, his partner slash friend. Well, and also like that moment between Willis and, and Travolta in, you know, early in the film. Mm-hmm. I have all kinds of theories about that because they're just Travolta's so so mean to Willis, and they're like looking at each other like, "What's his problem?" or whatever. And if you're thinking about it in realistic terms, but it's this whole idea that Travolta knows that this is the guy who is going to kill him. That's why he's got such antagonism to him. It's reading a bit too much in the film, probably. But I, probably for me, when I first saw it, it was like, "Oh, they were both in uh, Look Who's Talking." Just Bruce Willis was the yes. voice of the baby, and like for me, yeah. it's this moment of these two actors who are in you know a well-received, generally yeah. speaking, in a popular their film and now you actually get these two in the same location and this one, who are you like i remember thinking that too it was kind of cool that the loot the look who's talking connection this movie yeah yeah. Uh, often criticized, I just get your take on this, because I and we're spending a lot of time on Pulp Fiction, but it's a big movie. A lot of people are not crazy about Tarantino's cameo appearance in the Bonnie situation, and he's kind of screaming and shouting his way through this performance, and, you know, I think he feels most comfortable when he's acting off of Harvey Keitel, but I, I don't get too bothered by it. I know some other people kind of feel like they're they're taking out of the movie at that point. Well, if, you're look, yeah, if, you're, if you are looking for weak points in the movie, it's a weak point. It's nothing to do with how it's written and whatever but 
had would it be better served if he had cast one of the many other talented actors that he works with in that maybe or probably but i don't get too hung up on it it's you're right it's it's the more it's particular in the section where he's like don't jimmy me jewels like it it just rings a bit yeah yeah, Yeah. it it doesn't ring as true okay that he does it it sounds a little bit um i don't know valley girl-ish or something like that where just just the pace isn't quite right there of the line delivery but but he wrote and directed the damn thing so you want to put himself in the movie put yourself in the movie in the hitchcock thing there and i think we both like pulp fiction there aren't a whole lot of flaws there but yeah again i probably wouldn't show it to my 12 year old daughter not yet (laughs) not yet (laughs) ladies and gentlemen you've heard all the evidence i submit that this was not a hot-blooded crime of passion consider this a revolver holds six bullets not eight that means that he fired the gun empty and then stopped to reload by the power vested in me by the state of maine i hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back one for each of your victims so be it send you here for life that's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me, Dad! In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, friend! you're putting me behind! Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not! You better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. You get busy dying. Get busy living. Or get busy dying. That's damn right. We're going to end off with the movie that kind of was the catalyst for, for this show, The Shawshank Redemption. And I, I think those who weren't kind of aware of how kind of 1994 and into early 95 worked don't realize that The Shawshank Redemption was actually a box office failure. It I think there were some critics out there that liked it. Certainly people were paid some attention to Morgan Freeman and, and, and Tim Robbins. But it was a movie that was a little bit kind of it, it had this great advertising campaign. I remember at the same time as Quiz Show and I was like, this is going to be the greatest movie season ever. I can't, I can't wait to see that movie and that movie. But then Quiz Show got a lot of that attention for the rest of the year and Shawshank kind of disappeared until at that time they would re-release movies because you couldn't instantly get movies. You even had to wait six months before it to come out on VHS to rent. It was re-released in 95 and the Academy much to their credit, they were they were the ones who championed it. It didn't get nominated for Best Picture at the Golden Globe Awards and 
out of it almost seemed like out of nowhere it got seven oscar nominations including best picture it wasn't nominated for darabont for best director tim robbins who i was kind of in the conversation a crowded field for best actor wasn't nominated but freeman was and it was nominated for screenplay and several tech awards but then home video it became you know sort of the first kind of it, it was actually labeled as a cult movie in some ways because home video kind of saved it in the movie ownership it became so big and people discovered it after that year and after the award season to the point where for a long time on imdb it was the considered the greatest movie of all time and then the, the whole year was pulp fiction versus forrest gump for best picture and all these people were saying what about the shawshank redemption this should have won best picture how did this not happen and now it's i mean it has such a legacy people are like how did it not win and th they think it would have been like an obvious nominee and a favorite going all along but it was it was afterwards that it kind of got its its legacy and its uh, its prominence it's about tim robbins who ends up in prison for killing his wife he claims he's innocent uh he continues to claim that for many years very familiar structure as far as like a prison movie i think what kind of blew it out of the water is people didn't realize that it was based on a novella by stephen king mm -hmm. that didn't realize Stephen King was capable of anything other than horror, even though if you look at his whole career as a novelist, he's written many, like Stand By Me was eight years before this, and, you know, he's very capable and comfortable in a whole series of different genre, but I think he, at that point people were just like, he just writes horror, that's all it's about, and they hadn't read Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So that was the revelation, I think, in many ways, and because a lot of people didn't read the novella, spoilers for a 27-year-old movie, but there is an enormous plot twist that happens at the end and I to be honest I, I didn't see it coming I was blown away by this plot twist and everything that happened afterwards I'm a big fan of the Shawshank Redemption but it's interesting because I hadn't watched it because I guess I get super critical when I prepare for this show I don't think it's a perfect movie I think there are a couple things that as great as it is that are not necessarily as original as they felt it kind of felt like a, a new and fresh take on the prison film but there's things from the, the Birdman of Alcatraz and Escape from Alcatraz and some familiar tropes that, that I've seen in some films before it that I think were kind of pieced together and borrowed but the whole thing together with particularly those two leads and I, looking at the supplementary materials they said there were very few movies and still are very few movies Fight Club might be the other one which is about a, a male friendship they, they even called like a, a heterosexual male love story is the Shawshank Redemption and I think that was also part of the draw is that this was not something that a lot of filmmakers were exploring at the time. I think it's very well directed, looks great. I think there was still a little bit of a some politics against Tim Robbins at that time with the Academy. I, I really think he should have been up for best actor. I might controversially might even say that he's better than Morgan Freeman. I think there's a few people that would be very mad at me for saying that. I, I think there are a lot of folks who think Morgan Freeman should have won best actor for the Shawshank Redemption. But I they almost could have shared the award because together it was just such a, a great one-two punch, one of the greats of all time. So I obviously you mentioned Shawshank. You you must love this film. So feel free to just rip me apart with anything I just said. No, not at all. Uh, the only thing I would add, uh, Thomas Newman is probably my favorite composer for films. Yes. And his score for this is this kind of made like everything after go, well, is it Shawshank good or or not? Like <laughs> it, it be, kind of became the benchmark for me. And and 
to the point where it's funny we just watched as a family not too long ago the great outdoors with john candy and and dan Aykroyd and and that betting and 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 anyways thomas newman pops up i'm like what is that the same thomas newman and sure enough he was doing like movies in the 80s right like and like that's what he was doing at that point early in his career that kind of right around shawshank and then after that i could pick it out i remember like going to see finding nemo and like the first few bars and i leaned over to my wife and i'm like thomas newman did the score and the angels in america America miniseries and Road to Perdition is, I think, an underrated film. I, I love it. And he's constantly writing the score for films that I love. And I think it's his score that's part of what brings me along. So the, the score alone on Shawshank, I was just like, I'm like, how does how's that man never won an Academy Award yet? I don't understand. Like, yeah. He's been nominated so many times. That was what I was going to say is like, what does this guy have to do? I don't know if you've seen 1917. Yep. It's one of the few I went and saw in the studio or in the in the cinema i don't go yeah. out all that often That's anymore that one but i mean and nothing against the score for for joker all right yeah. and I was great, yeah. it was great to see a female composer finally win an oscar long time due but that score for 1917 is as perfect as you can get and yeah. you know i think that one is it is in the same conversation as this score for shawshank so right with you because he he has kind of the, there's the dark parts but then there's like the the lighter moments and he has um, a quirkiness too he kind of he uses it quite a bit in American Beauty as well, but he'll turn a corner and does these kind of odd couple of tracks that seem out of place, yet they're totally in keeping with uh, what's happening in the movie, because the scene that's at that moment is kind of odd and out of place, and so he he supports it by doing that in the score as well. Yeah, I I love it. Like, I I saw a friend of mine not too long ago uh, made a post, and maybe I'm saved this because I don't have cable TV, and I kind of control what I watch in terms of, you know, know, just kind of stick to Netflix and Disney Plus and just seek out what I want to watch as opposed to just having a TV and, and try to surf to find something. But he was like, I don't know, maybe I finally have done it. Maybe I've seen Shawshank too many times because I think at this point it is. It's just always on movie channels and stuff like that. But for me, I don't think I can ever get tired of it. Wherever I see it, I'm like, oh, I know exactly where we are. Uh, I know what part comes next. Some of it was a bit, like I thought, like, okay, I, I, we did watch this one with my daughter. And I, I'm like, there's a couple of scenes that might be a bit. Uh, it we'll is see. dark. That's the one yeah. I was wondering about is she's, and I, I, I have met her and she's a very mature, like she's, you know, yeah. 12, but she's more mature than the average 12 year old, you know, not to bash 12 year olds, but you know, yeah. uh, you know, very well read and everything. So I kind of thought, well, maybe, maybe you watched it, maybe you didn't, but probably could handle it. But yeah, there are, I remember there were scenes, I, I was older than her when I saw this, but I was shocked right. by some, some really, really tough scenes uh, in the film there. I mean, they, yeah. it's about this friendship and it's, you know, it's about hope and in many ways that's the theme and not yeah. done in a corner way or anything like that in quite a genuine way but you know yeah there's there's some you know it, it doesn't skirt the violence of a prison at, at, at that time no, um, not at all. a few moments are just shocking like there's just the and maybe this is a little bit of a criticism of it now and I think part of it is Stephen King's touch maybe more than Frank Darabont's touch he does paint his villains in broad strokes they are like super super evil and Bob Gunton playing you know this warden when we see what he's fully capable of like he is he is so evil presents as a politician as kind of a charming fella but then he has this we see what he does to keep tim robbins you know in prison and basically his his slave and working for him and helping him in this money laundering scheme i think both him and clancy brown as like the the head guard they're great actors so i'm not criticizing the acting but i think there could be an argument that as villainous characters they're a little bit two-dimensional now 
That said, in the supplementary materials, the documentaries, Clancy Brown actually was, you know, he was aware of that and he was talking to Bob Gunton about the same, you know, this is like how I'm playing this, everything, like it's it's all evil. It's like there isn't much of a character here. The argument was that Bob Gunton said was, well, this is a story being told by Red and this is a prisoner's perspective on the head guard and the warden. And so, of course, they're presented as super evil, that it's not necessarily like a, this isn't a documentary on what happens there. So that that was a little bit of a justification of my criticism of it. But I think this time watching it, I was just a little bit more aware of that. But it didn't bother me back in the day, I guess, when I saw that. No, it it, it didn't bother me and and nor did it. then and and when I rewatched it, you know, I, I guess th- those are the, the, the exactly the kind of questions you need to ask if you're playing those characters, like what's coming across here. But but I I still feel although he's you know a hard head guard, he does win him over in terms of you know not getting thrown off the roof. Like it's not until the moment that they shoot the you know the one guy who comes along and can prove Andy Dufresne's story that I kind of feel like oh here we go point of no return. You know you kind of sense something bad's gonna happen. It's not. Like that's not a, sh- a shock, but what they do specifically, and for me, it just yeah, I always felt like it was an illustration of the hypocrisy of people in positions of power who claim a certain belief system, in his case, religion, and yet he's yeah. doing some of the most horrible things. In the yeah. but he, I never felt that like he was twisting the evil mustache while he did it, right? I, I felt like he was playing what his character wanted, and then once that becomes threatened, then he doubles down. He's a little bit like a used Bible. He's trying to Christianize all the uh, prisoners but he's doing this through committing any number of sins. Stephen King hates hypocrites and bullies. I want to mention uh, Jill Bellows plays Tommy who is uh, kind of this this young guy who's illiterate yeah. who you know Tim Robbins mentors and gets him his GED and is the one who kind of discovers that yeah Andy Dufresne isn't just one, another one of these people claiming that he's innocent when he isn't. He's very good. William Sattler is always a presence. He plays Haywood. Uh, he's again he's good he's just, uh, he's just one of the gang though there they have all these faces that work well for the film i do want to mention like james whitmore (laughs) as brooks uh, yeah almost the heart and soul of the film i think and he's just this man who i think what happens to him prompts so much of what tim robbins does Andy dufresne because he sees what can become of somebody who gets too used to being in prison and doesn't have that hope of getting out and he also sees in morgan freeman as red that he's moving in that direction because he just keeps being rejected rejected and rejected every time he goes up in front of the parole board i like all those scenes like that's so well acted by freeman this was the movie that established morgan freeman as like the greatest voiceover narration (laughs) of all time I get a little bit sick of it sometimes. Like he he did some voiceover work for that War of the Worlds remake that Spielberg did. I didn't think that was that necessary and right, yeah, charming enough for Visa commercials and that kind of thing. But it, it's lost the impact that it had with Shawshank and even say Million Dollar Baby because it's it's been done so much. You know, it's it's like Samuel L. Jackson with the the shouting and screaming characters that he does. You know, it starts to become a little bit more of a caricature of itself. But back in '94 we weren't right. seeing it as much so it was yeah. just absolutely brilliant and in many ways it's a more subtle performance than than robbins were like but we're yeah. following we're hearing morgan freeman tell the story but we're following andy dufresne's story and i like both of them and i i i really could have seen an argument for both of them being up for best actor as well as hugh grant for four weddings and the funeral and like there's any number that that's that category was crowded they could have had 10 people up for best actor and i don't think they would have missed a beat because yeah those who weren't in a nominated 
nominated Best Picture film were Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool and you know Madness of King George and you know it, it was it was a really really good list that year. Yeah, you, you said it earlier before too, and I think it is kind of the important thing about it is you know it is a film about a friendship. Like it's I remember um, I think it was Siskel that said it when it was first reviewed. He's like you know Shawshank Redemption is a prison movie in the same way that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is about. Uh, an institution you know what i mean like it's that's that's the setting it's not actually what it's no. about and no. i think that's kind of what one people is like oh wow it's about these two men who kind of took time to warm to each other and then they become fast friends and they become each other's reason to get out especially in red's case right he, but it is it, you're right there's a great turn where like once you do find out that andy dufresne has gotten out then it's that great reveal of like okay well how did he do it yeah and then all of a sudden it does kind of a an exciting turn in the narration. I think the the other thing that's amazing about it, and this speaks to me how great a writer, but also a director, Frank Darabont is. Once we get out of the prison, you feel as much relief as the characters do. <laughs> feel like you've been in prison i'm going to talk about the big reveal so again 27 year old movie but if you have not seen the shawshank redemption you've already kind of revealed that andy finds a way to get out of the prison and i don't know why this time it's probably because i was just looking to be super critical i i buy everything my question is how did andy know that there was going to be a thunderstorm that night so that he could time you know all of that like the banging on on the pipes get out uh at the same time as as you know the thunder is, is striking there like to me that felt a looking at this time and being super critical i've never asked this question before but a little bit convenient and maybe well if, yeah for me for me i always felt like he made the decision to go that night based on you know getting out of solitary and the conversation he has with red in the yard and then it just happens to storm that night and he uses it to his advantage if it had been so, a calm night would he have been able to i mean I, that's a great question i don't that's know a great question and maybe that's fate working in his advantage to yeah. giving him a way to get out just giving an iconic shot of yeah. him getting out of the pipe at the other end, standing yeah. there with the rain well, coming down. And that's in such an earned moment. I mean, that's a, a four-year consideration and showing yeah. off <laughs> cinematography, which is, again, a big part of this. Like, it's so beautifully photographed. You know, you make an argument all five of these movies are just beautifully photographed. I mean, Four Weddings is a little bit more serviceable to the story, but yeah, the other four just have great cinematography, but that moment is just, is just brilliant. It's on the poster for a reason, and you try through all of this and we have gone along with this poor guy on this and yeah it, it's we're feeling the freedom that he feels and then you just have a smile on your face like to see how brilliant Andy was how far ahead of, uh, Bob Gunton he was through the entire thing like he he had his way out uh, and had been thinking about this obviously for a while and then it just got got to be too much another scene which played in a lot of award shows was when he uh, locks the office and he plays that beautiful music and everybody in the prison stops and, and watches I mean I think again in, a, in lesser hands that could come across as very cheesy but it, it's it's just a beautiful scene and the music is perfect for it and so I, I understand why this is a classic but I, I just wanted to explain that for some reason I mean like a lot of great movies like 2001 is one uh, there's all these classic movies that initially just didn't get enough attention and it was after the fact that they became classics and so that was kind of the, the award story like Shawshank was a nominated film but not an Oscar winning film and I, I think you know it it would probably do quite well if the they had that the award show uh, again today. So yeah, I agree. And might even have beat the legendary Forrest Gump. And the Oscar goes to 
Forrest Gump, Wendy Finneman, Steve Tisch, and Steve Stocky, producer. Well, Sky Brandon, thank you so much for being on the show for the first time. I think we'll hear from you again. Uh, we've, you know, as a little bit of a... Uh, a preview of probably the next time we'll have you on the show. This past week, we lost Christopher Plummer, great Canadian actor, and we'll save some of your stories. You have some stories about him for uh, <laughs> do a show, but I think it'll be a tribute show in the not too distant future where I'll have you back on. And uh, uh, I just appreciate you taking the time to do this. You're you're a busy man. You're an actor, a director, a teacher. Again, I, when you moved back here, I just thought this is such a great thing for Saskatchewan, the arts community, for the theater community, and uh, I know we've been in such tough times with COVID here so even more so just I keep mentioning every show please support local artists and, and theater artists as uh, as we continue through this pandemic it's uh, it's been it's been tough I, I look forward to the day that we're back to producing theater in person with an audience such an important part of my life yeah no thanks thanks for that uh, I agree it'll be it'll feel pretty good once everybody can kind of get back to some semblance of what they used to do yeah I don't care under the Shakespeare tent or the, like their new area it's just fantastic and live five and persephone theater and all the other great new theater companies that were starting up fair play in Saskatoon mm -hmm. just before the pandemic hit so getting to the uh the tough part for me is always the we do the points and then i have to lose one of these movies here so let's go in the order we reviewed them in how many points would you give forrest gump i decided to give it 10 and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Seven. And Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, I did 12. And Quiz Show. Eight. And The Shawshank Redemption. 13. You did a nice job of spreading the points out. It's something I usually like to do. I'm not sure I spread them out quite as evenly as I do some other shows. <laughs> I think we're, let's see, we're mostly close. There's a few where we're in different places for sure here. Started off, I, I gave 13 points to Forrest Gump. <laughs> Again, this one's just a sentimental one. I know that, like, I mentioned Titanic purposefully at the beginning. It's kind of like Titanic. There's people who are just like, I'm so sick about hearing how great that movie is. It's <laughs> whatever, but I think there's an edge to Forrest Gump that a lot of people don't yeah. don't credit it with, so. i was happy to see it you know get the the accolades that it did i've i've always enjoyed it it's just it's a there's a lot of good movies in this group yeah it, it was and deep down in my heart i kind of felt good about that too and particularly the attention hank scott because it wasn't a, a gimme that he'd win best actor two years in a row but uh yeah four ways in a funeral i was harder on i uh, gave it only four points i mean it's i want people to check it out so the four points is not would probably be 15 to 20 points if it was mixed in with some other if this was a rom-com show or something like that but yeah against the other four movies it's 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 tough competition there pulp fiction i gave 18 points to i mean it is one of my two favorite movies of all time so i got a lot of points i own about three, three different discs for it so <laughs> I could have skewed things so that it was the one that goes, but everybody would be calling BS on me because I've been spending 27 years talking about it being the greatest movie of all time. So, Interestingly enough, Quiz Show, exactly the same. I gave eight points as well. We both gave it eight. Please check out Quiz Show. I think it's a great film, and yeah, people really should check it out. Shawshank, I was really hard on this time, and I, I don't know if it was because of its its legacy or whatever. I, was, I enjoyed myself watching it, but I was almost looking for flaws because it's been almost 
celebrated as a flawless movie, but there, there are a couple things in there. So I gave it seven, which might seem unkind or a little bit low for uh, a classic movie there. Where that leaves us as uh, not surprisingly, uh, because of the 18 points inflating the totals here, Pulp Fiction with 30 points had the most uh, of any of these. Forrest Gump ended up in second with 23 points. Then third was The Shawshank Redemption with 20 points. I think that kind of makes sense. Like if we take a look at if you were to pull people among those three movies, I think those would, those would be the top three. I think the fact that the uh, the lesser known Dark Horse films here are the bottom two, but that's just kind of how it worked out. 16 points for Quiz Show, fourth place there. And the movie that has to leave my movie shelf with 11 points is Four Weddings and a Funeral. So what would you like me to do with Four Weddings and a Funeral? Is that one of the ones I, I lent you? You lent me because I don't have my own copy. So technically it's already out of your house. Yeah, Off it your is. shelf. It's in my house currently, so I can I can take care of it for you if you want. Yeah, well, it, it would become yours if you want and if you enjoy it and uh, would appreciate it. You know, I don't think this is a one where the bottom movie needs to be brutally destroyed and or burnt or something. That's the state. But so. I will return your copy of Quiz Show. I won't uh, I won't hold on to it any longer. I'll do a, a safe, uh, socially distanced movie drop in the yeah. near future. Yeah. But yeah. no, you're right. Like that that kind of makes sense. Like it, it does feel like the way time is treated some of these films that you know gump paul fiction and shawshank are definitely kind of in their own class and depending on who you're talking to any one person can make a case for why they like one of those three over the other two um i love all three and the other two then it kind of becomes okay well where did where do your thoughts lie on those two and four weddings just it does it it, it does feel like a movie apart okay here here's my added part of this and i've okay. already kept you for more than two hours here but thank you so much for this it was such an amazing year in 94 if you were to let's say let's say four weddings was, was the cast out if you were to pick a movie that was snubbed from that year that should have been nominated for Best Picture, what would it be? Oh, God. Uh, in terms of like the age that I was at that time, it certainly has lived on, but Reality Bites is a sentimental favorite. Yeah. And especially that the fact that it was directed by Ben Stiller, like maybe not a people, like he's in it, but not because they don't associate, many people don't associate him as a film director. Well, I mean, Tropic Fun Thunder was a very ambitious film that he, he yeah. did. But yeah, that one kind of is the one that kind of, when I went through the list real quick, I'm like, oh, like I think it did fine that year. It just wouldn't have been in terms of like awards and stuff like that and critical i'd have to look to see if like independent spirit awards or anything like that if it kind of got some attention that way mine is way more mainstream than yours actually (laughs) for me as far as like hand-drawn animation my favorite modern now 27 year old as in modern like yeah 90s on disney film has to be the lion king King, yeah yeah and at that age i I was like this teenager who didn't want to see an animated movie and when i finally saw it i was like what was wrong with me why didn't i want to see this and then that over the years like the hamlet connections and i never get tired of of seeing the lion king i it it won the golden globe for best picture musical or comedy obviously was successful in the music category but i i think you know if if we're not going with if Four Weddings, it probably should have been in there and been the second animated movie nominated for Best Picture. I actually like it way better than Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that too. I, I remember seeing it, I remember seeing it and in conjunction 
with Aladdin, but those two going to see them in the movie theater, it really felt like a return in form to Disney. Like it felt like, you know, not to dismiss the stuff they're making up to that point, but it really did feel like, oh, here we go. Disney's back. Yeah, the 90s were kind of like a new 30s, 40s for them. Of the five movies, who would you have given best director to? Director? Probably Tarantino or Darabont. If if you had to choose one, who would it be? Well, I suppose, you know, if I'm looking back over body of work, it'd be great for Tarantino to have something. Yeah. Like I know he got the you know, he he's had awards for his writing and, and whatnot, but like it's it is one of those films that's like like did he not get the love because they thought, Oh, he's young, he's gonna have his time and then you know, sometimes you end up someone getting an award for the film that maybe they shouldn't have got it for. They got it for one after that they should have got it for. But Pulp Fiction was something new. Like, I don't, I, for me, I'm drawn more to Shawshank, but just in terms of craft and make me stand up in my seat and go, what the hell did I just watch? Probably Tarantino. Controversially, as much as I, I said I love Pulp Fiction and I love I love all these movies, believe it or not, and I, again, I just really watching for this system, I still to this day would have given it to Robert Redford for Quiz Show, believe it or not. It's a more subtle job of direction, but as you said, like the pace and the whole vision, the way he worked with the actors i mean i just think it's an underrated job of directing i pulp fiction i was so overwhelmed by how great the screenplay is i maybe dismissed the directing i I, and i think with with washank and forrest gump you know maybe unfairly some of the visual and some of the tricks of of and the cleverness of the screenplay kind of maybe overshadow like it these are flashier films as as directors and i think it's tough to just tell the story straight without a whole lot of attention drawn to the director and that's what Redford does in, in Quiz Show. If you were to give uh, an award to a female actor in any one of these movies, who do you think is the best job? Oof. Um, well, okay, I owe you something after like, this time when you No, piece. no, but it's good. But you know, it does. It shows you know of the time too, right? Like we still hadn't turned much of a corner. Like it's the they don't have as much opportunity to yeah. shine as some of the men. But I would probably say Robin Wright and Forrest Gump. I'd, I, the more love we can give her, the better. Which is not yeah. to take away that'd from my, from anyone else. No, that that would definitely be my choice. Male actor. I think you know, given time and and its effect on me, I. I'd probably say Morgan Freeman. That makes yeah. sense. You're not alone in that one. And yeah. for me, it's just Samuel L. Jackson. I think it's one of the greatest film performances of all time. Much as everything I said about directing and being subtle, like, it's a flashy performance, and Freeman's is not as flashy. So you can call me a hypocrite on that one. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I just the, the charm and the humor of Jackson mixed in with the power and how scary he is in scenes early in the film, and then for him to turn into kind of the zen calm figure it's all in one morning basically uh, yeah. we run into at the end of the film it, it's remarkable and i i think it's kind of a bit of a shame that he's been kind of somewhat overlooked by the academy over the years i mean i think there's there'd be an argument for a time to kill or mm-hmm. hateful eight for him to get some attention you know, and going back to jungle fever not anybody could have played that crackhead role and and found kind of the complexity and the humanity in that spike lee film before people even really knew who who he was was. anyway sky thank you so much for doing this again anytime Uh, it's great yeah yeah, and uh we'll we'll talk about uh mr christopher Plummer uh sometime soon in the future 
I uh, just want to do a shout out for a couple of podcasts that one I mentioned a couple times, but uh, Larry Parsons Rankin Review, which I call kind of the, the father podcast to this sitting movie show that I do. Also, Kurt Fitzpatrick from New Jersey, uh, regular guest on the show, has a lifetime of Hallmark with him and two other guys mockingly review in great detail, scene by scene analysis of either Lifetime or Hallmark movies. <laughs> He recently appeared on Rankin Review, and I, I listened to that show on Crazy 80s, number two, and it was, uh, it was a very entertaining episode of the show. So I just want to shout that out. And again, please keep sharing this podcast with movie fans in your life and support local artists. Keep going to the movies in some way, find some way to see movies and support them and just be safe and kind to one another. Thanks, everyone.